Hi, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners. My new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now on sale. Publishers Weekly calls it masterful, and Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, an entertaining, eye-opening investigation. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple Podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. From chefs to mixologists, if you manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was built to make your pro kitchen life easier. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Get started by visiting getmes.com forward slash Andrew. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm always trying to match the energy of a live show because whenever you're cooking seasonally, kind of spontaneously, some things aren't going to be perfect sometimes. And you just have to like roll with that. We just cook. We just go. A lot of the dishes you had last night, those have been on the menu for one to seven days. And sometimes a dish goes on and then it only has that one night. Trying to create a moment where it's alive in that moment is what I'm always trying to do, kind of like you're trying to find that great rock show performance. That is the voice of Tracy Malachek Ezekiel, chef and co-owner of Birdie's Restaurant in Austin, Texas. Tracy is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you are well. Our guest today is Tracy Malachek Ezekiel. Tracy is one of the chefs I interviewed back at the Hot Luck Festival over Memorial Day weekend earlier this year. We had a tremendous conversation. I'll tee it up for you in just a moment. There are a couple of things, though, that I did want to mention before we get into the meat of the show. As many of you probably know, because I've been mentioning it uh, in the last few episodes, my book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food is now on sale. 
The book tells the story of all the people whose lives and work come together in one restaurant dish. In the book, you meet the dishwasher, the server, the cooks, the chefs, the farmers, the field workers, delivery truck drivers, and what's more, it is all told during a single dinner service. It's a book that can be enjoyed by anybody and I think would be educational for anybody, but it's also very much meant to celebrate the industry, which means many of you who listen to this show, I would sincerely love and appreciate it if you checked it out and if it looks appealing, if you bought a copy, uh, if you're in one of the cities I'm visiting, uh, I'd love to see you at one of our events. Uh, there are links to where you can read more about the book on the episode description for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcast. And along those lines, I just want to mention a couple of quick appearances. I will be at P&T Knitwear in Lower Manhattan tonight, the day this show drops, Tuesday, November 14th at 7 p.m. I will be in conversation about the book with Amanda Hesser. Of course, Amanda is the founder of the Food 52 website. If you are listening to this on the day it drops and you're feeling spontaneous, come visit us tonight. It's going to be a fun conversation. Amanda and I have known each other a long time and you can get a book and you could get it signed and personalized. And along the same lines, I will be with my good friend Aaron Bluthorn this Thursday at his restaurant Bluthorn in Houston, Texas. We're having a meet the author lunch. And if you are in or near Houston, I'd love to see you there. And Friday, I will be speaking at Kendall College in Chicago, Illinois, with Chef Beverly Kim and farmer John Templin, who are two of the main characters profiled in the dish and there are links to where you can learn more and RSVP for all of those events in the episode description for today's show again at the andrewtalkstochefs.com website or wherever you listen to your podcast. I want to share uh, quickly a dining experience I had the other night. Um, the team that uh, own and operate Cafe Spaghetti which was one of the big hits in New York last year just opened a new restaurant called Swoonies that is spelled S-W-O-O-N-Y apostrophe S. It's pretty terrific. It's only been open a little more than a week. It has a really fun vibe. And they didn't phone it in. This is not just another Italian-American restaurant where they can send their overflow customers. It's around the corner from Cafe Spaghetti, but it's an entirely unique restaurant. And I have to pause here and mention... I don't know why my voice is sounding so scratchy, maybe just because I've been on the phone all day. Um, but for anyone who may be concerned, I'm not sick or anything. I just all of a sudden have no voice. In any event, um, the restaurant's kind of a deliberate throwback to the kind of place you might have hung out and talked politics in the West Village of New York maybe several decades back. Um, I, I think the team has knocked it out of the park again. Uh, I'll be at this restaurant a lot. It is in my neighborhood, and I look forward to seeing how it does what every restaurant does, which is continue to settle in and develop over the holidays and into next year. I also don't usually do this, but I went on a movie tear recently, and I wanted to share my super fast bullet point reviews of the four films I saw in the last seven days. I saw The Killer 
which for about 45 minutes I thought was amazing. After that, I felt like it was diminishing returns, but I'm one of these people who can basically look at David Fincher movies all day long, and this one, like all of his movies, is very meticulous and beautiful. Anatomy of a Fall, which I believe won the main prize at the Cannes Film Festival this year. I I think it's a little longer than it needs to be, but expertly done, and the performances are great. The big disappointment of my week was Saturday night after that great dinner at Swoonies. Caitlin and I went to see Priscilla, Sofia Coppola's new movie about Priscilla Presley. And I hate to say this because Kate and I both count Lost in Translation, which Sofia Coppola also directed as among our favorite movies of all time. I think it's probably Kate's actual favorite movie of all time. But we did not get what was going on with Priscilla. It felt very kind of, uh, I don't know, a little pointless, a little dull, a little boring. I hate saying all of that, but I really can't recommend it, don't recommend it. And lastly, last night, I finally, after returning tickets to this movie three times in the last few weeks, I finally found three and a half hours to go see Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which... Like most people who have seen it, reviewed it, who you've probably heard talk about it, I thought was fascinating. I I thought it was really gripping. The performances were excellent across the board. And, you know, it's three and a half hours long, but the execution of it and, frankly, the history lesson of it is so well done. I was just enraptured the whole time. Um, uh, not the most pleasant film you'll ever see. The story is very grim and sad, uh, and it describes a, a historical and epic injustice. But I, I, I personally recommend it. And of the ones I just listed, I think it's the one that would suffer most on the small screen. Anyway, I'm going to get to Tracy in just a moment. Uh, but before I do, as always, I want to ask, have you checked out Mies yet? And if not, why not? It will make your life easier. As you've heard me say here on the show, Mies, which is spelled M-E-E-Z, is the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. What that means is that it is a place for you to house all of your recipes, change them as necessary, share them with your team, along with instructional photos and videos if you would like, as well as scale them and pull out from them whatever information you need food costs, allergen data, yield loss, unit conversions, and nutritional breakdowns. If you are a chef, line cook, mixologist, operator, or in any way manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was created just for you. And it was created by a former chef and restaurateur by the name of Josh Sharkey, who is a good friend of mine, And I'm telling you, I absolutely, yes, they are a paid advertiser here. I I, I have demoed this product. I have heard from listeners who use it. I have introduced people to it who have signed up for it and love it. Every bit of feedback I've had from myself and others has been positive. And I'll leave it there for my mention of them this week, except to tell you that as a listener of Andrew Talks to Chefs, you'll receive 25 free recipe uploads and breakdowns on your new free Mies account. If you sign up today, learn more at getmies, that is G-E-T-M-E-E-Z.com forward slash Andrew. 
head there on your own from what I just read you, or simply click through via the link where you find it. You know, I've said it five times this episode already on the episode description page for today's show. So I have been slowly doling out the, I think, five interviews I did at the Hot Luck Festival in Austin, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Again, in the interest of full disclosure, I was a guest of the festival. Um, I was flown out there for the purpose of doing some podcasting. Um, I had an amazing time. I've talked about Austin on the show before this episode. I had never been there before. I'm completely fascinated by it. I'm planning to go back there with Caitlin. And one of the more popular restaurants and one of the more news-generating restaurants of the last couple of years in Austin is Birdie's. And Birdie's is owned and operated by today's guest, Tracy Malachek Ezekiel and her husband, Arjav Ezekiel. Uh, I actually knew Arjav from when he was in New York uh, at uh, Gramercy Tavern. Uh, I had never met Tracy before, uh, although I'd eaten in some restaurants where I'm quite sure she must have been uh, in the kitchen at the time. Uh, But Tracy is the chef at Birdie's. And the restaurant, as you're going to hear at the very top of the episode, so I won't spoil it here, um, in addition to having terrific food and service, It operates on a progressive, is the word I would probably use, business model. Um, They uh, do some unconventional things. Mainly, it's a streamlining of uh, several of the processes uh, that involve the interaction between guest uh, and restaurant team. And I got to tell you, uh, you will hear the benefits of this to the bottom line of the restaurant Uh, to the benefits they are able to offer to their staff, to the quality of life they and their staff are able to enjoy. And for all of you in the industry out there, I really believe the future has kind of crept up on us. uh, And many of us don't realize that in many ways, we're already living in a restaurant future. Um, To me, Birdie's is one of the restaurants that kind of exemplifies that. They have found a slightly new way of doing things that takes a lot of the pressure of having a restaurant off their shoulders. And as I say, we get into much of that at the top of the show. And I think uh, if you do own a restaurant or in any way are involved with the management of a restaurant or plan to own and or operate a restaurant in your future, I think you will find that portion of the interview very interesting. As well as Tracy's life story, she's worked for some great people on her way up. She spent time at Gramercy Tavern and Untitled Restaurants in New York City. She spent time in Chicago at Lula Cafe. And cooking was not the first thing she thought she may do with her life. We get into all of that in the conversation. And I don't think I need to say anything else in the way of introduction, except that as always, Our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Tracy Malachek Ezekiel. Here you 
go. Tracy, good to see you again. Likewise, thanks for having me. Our second time in less than 24 hours. If we could start by talking about birdies. I just ate there last night, first time. I loved it, as you know. Can you just tell listeners about the restaurant? You just turned two, is that right? We're turning two this July. If you could tell them a little about the restaurant, what you all do there, and then I'll I'll get to it, but I wanna talk about how you do it there, because I think it's very cool. Birdie's is a neighborhood restaurant and wine bar in East Austin. We serve seasonal American food with Italian and French influences. And our job, my husband and partner, he does the wine list and I'm the chef. And you two met in New York? We met in New York opening a restaurant in downtown. I came there last night. I thought the food was great. And there was stuff I wasn't being from the East Coast expecting to have that I, you know, it was a treat like the tomatoes. I'm not used to eating a tomato that tastes like that for another like three months. Same. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in the middle of summer all of a sudden. I loved your food. I loved, I mean, the, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how stupid, it's so basic, right? But it was just delicious. I just thought it was just delicious and, and, and not overly complicated, but not overly simple. I mean, you said it, you know, you included Italian in your reference points. Like mm-hmm. I, that's part, part of what I associate with Italian cooking is mm-hmm. this like directness and relatability. All the key ingredients to me just shown like in every dish. And I just absolutely, we all loved our meal there. Thank you. The thing I'd love to talk about before we go back and talk about your story, and it was a subject of conversation at our table last night, the setup, the logistics of it. I have believed for several years now, and I think it's really starting to pop in this, like wherever this is, late COVID or post COVID time we're in, that, you know, restaurants are in transition, uh, I think in the most fundamental way they've ever been in any of our lifetimes. I think, you know, prior to now, the changes have all been like, the style of food or or the or the formality of service or you know do you need to dress up or not right that's Mm -hmm. but the but the basic structure of how a meal works in a quote-unquote proper restaurant has basically been the same you come in you're sat somebody waits on you they bring you your food right sure okay Tell people how it works at Birdie's because I've seen similar things elsewhere, but I, you know, I'm just, this is something I think is worth a short conversation before we get into your story. Certainly. So we have a counter service model and we're open for dinner only. So what you do is you come in, if there's a line, you wait in line. We have a server coming uh, to the folks in line and offering wine. So you can enjoy wine in line while you wait. And then you order at the counter Um, pick up your flag and sit down and then from there it transitions to a normal restaurant so servers check in on you how are you doing would you like more wine another course and go from there so the beginning it feels counter service and then it kind of shifts so what we were doing is we were looking at the restaurants that we loved in california like the squirrel the destroyer model and you know we were thinking wow they're they make such delicious food, but without all of the things that fine dining includes. So how do we still deliver great food and wine, take care of our team, be sustainable? And then we're like, what if we did counter service for dinner? Could that work? Are people gonna wait in line? And it's worked out. Was there any pushback? There's probably 2% of our guests who don't understand it. And so what we try to do is to tell the why of why we do counter service. And that why is so we can take care of our team. So ultimately having that lean and mean business model, not having the host, not having the back waiters, the captains, the layers of service fine dining requires. We can keep our model so tight that 
Um, it allows us to do a lot of things. It allows us to take care of our team in a really thoughtful and meaningful way. So we can offer, we opened with offering a fantastic insurance package. Um, we do, we close for a month a year, two weeks over Christmas break and two weeks over summer break. Um, so everyone can be with their loved ones um, and that's paid. Um, we offer uh, parental leave. We just have a, we have a six month old at home. So we understand what people need whenever they have a little one. And we also um, support um, mental health care through subsidized therapy. So all of these things we think because we do have that tighter model Financially, we're not worried about keeping the lights on so we can really make smart decisions for them. Um, one more thing that it allows us to do, I think having this lean and mean model, is we tip out our entire team. So that includes dishwashers, cooks, servers, um, which we're certainly not the first ones to do it, but having this type model, they all make like between 26 and $34 an hour, which, you know, especially for the kitchen is kind of unheard of. It's great. So we're really proud of that. That's great. Um, I don't spend a, a lot. I've never been to Texas before. Welcome. Um, thank you. Um, I'm in love with this town. Uh, so I don't know, it, you know, coming from New York, it struck me this way. I don't know if it's the only meal I've had outside of the festival in town, right? It was uh. the meal I had at Birdie's. But, you know, I looked at the menu and immediately I was like, this seems like fairly gently priced. Is Are you kind of in line with what a restaurant that's serving the caliber of food you all are serving is here, or does what you're doing also allow you to offer it at a slightly lower price point? I think that we could do a slightly lower price point because we don't have the white tablecloths. We're not paying for all of that. And so we don't want it to feel like you walk in, you wait in line for you know some nights, an hour, and then you're slapped with these big prices. So we try to you know, still make it um, feel approachable and like a good value. So we kind of say like, okay, what feels reasonable? You know, I don't look at the menu from like a food cost perspective. It changes so much. I've honestly never done any food cost calculations. It's just kind of a holistic equation for us. The answer you gave was kind of, I was, you know, one of the people at my table last night was a chef uh, mm -hmm. uh, and another one knows a lot of chefs as I do and talks shop sometimes. I mean, I, I was just sitting there going like the, the, you, the, you use the word that I use. I said the layers of people mm -hmm. that they, don't, they eliminate here. It, it's, it's so more stripped. And I would think logistically as you work your way through a service, there's fewer, you know, there's fewer moving pieces, you, fewer, fewer moving human pieces. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's easier to kind of be in touch with your whole team, like mm -hmm. the whole night and for the organism to kind of function. That's all true as well, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have a, it's a very small, smart, fast moving team. It's services can get intense. You know, last night was really rocking. We had a lot of moving parts as any small restaurant can feel when it's really busy. But ultimately, I feel like the counter service model came out of this time of, you know, we, we signed release a month before the pandemic hit. And we were like, okay, we already wanted to take care of our team. We already wanted to do things differently, but we just need to like break this thing down and rebuild it. And so Birdies came out of that transitional time of like things are broken, things have been broken. We're all talking about it. We all know it's broken. And then that time we were furloughed between our kind of pay the bills jobs um, while while the restaurant was being built through COVID, it allowed us to like really have the time to formulate and create Birdies. You actually did the reset. 
We did the reset. <laughs> right, the reset that, ne that never was. Yeah. Except in like a few restaurants here and there. Right? 100%, 100%. Some people have done the reset, but the industry reset, sadly, um, didn't really happen yet. Um, you know, I, I hope some people are in their own way, and I, I know some people are in their own way, yes. but it's just, it's just gonna take so much time for yeah. the industry as a whole, yeah. you know? And I just feel like as terrible as the pandemic was in so many ways, it, you know, the timing was fortunate for Birdies and its creation um, because it all just came together through that tough time. I had a moment, I don't know, five, six years ago, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I ate at a restaurant, I think it's called Guero or Guero. It's a, it's a Mexican restaurant mm -hmm. and you walk in Mm -hmm. And there's a cashier, like you would have at a, like at a coffee place. Yep. And that's where you order your meal. And there is a bar and you can order, you know, a drink and then you sit down. But if you want water, if you want chips and salsa, there's a station and you, you just get it. I think if you wanted a second cocktail or something, you did go to the bar and order it. But, you know, they would bring it to you. Mm -hmm. Nobody cared. Nobody minded, yeah. you know. And I was like, you know, I've never owned or operated a restaurant, but I was just looking around at like, Everyone's happy. Yeah. And this must be great for the operators, like, you know, in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, does it, last question on this, and then we'll get into your biography, but does this also allow you and our job to, people talk about, you know, if you're a restaurant owner, like your whole year is made between like Thanksgiving and December 31st, right? Like mm -hmm. that's going to, you know, that's going to determine what kind of distribution you're going to take at the end of the yeah, year. Definitely in New York. Yeah. Is that also eliminated? Like for the two of you taking care of your staff, are you also able to take care of yourselves better? I don't just mean the time off you're able to take, but I mean, is it less stressful for your bottom line and for, for the stability you two are able to enjoy as restaurateurs? 1000% yes. Us having this model, you know, we're not offer, op, operating in the three to 5% profit margin range most restaurants are. So from coming from a place of financial stability, it allows you to, you know, close when you really need to close on a random day. So for example, I, I was very ill during my pregnancy last year. I mean, I got rocked. Um, it took me a long time to get pregnant. I worked through a lot of fertility problems. I'm 41 now. It was honestly such a blessing to get pregnant. I wasn't mentally thinking, oh, I could get really sick. I never knew anyone that got extremely sick. And at that time, we were extremely tight staffed. So I didn't have a sous chef yet. It was just me nonstop um, with our team. We do close Sunday, Monday. So everyone had that time to recharge. But I was so sick that there were a few days we had to close because I couldn't stand up and expedite. And having the business be in a healthy place, it allowed us to keep our heads on because we could still pay our team. Like, so, sorry guys, we're closing today. We'll make sure that you're, you, you know, you can keep the lights on at home, you're compensated. And we just move forward with that. So I think that in having that healthy business model, it's not like between Thanksgiving and Christmas or break, you know, we don't have that pressure. We or can, like a closing like that isn't going to like, it's, you're not it's okay. like, yeah. I mean, in the yeah. early days of COVID, people were saying like, this is when the public got an education about how tight the margins are. Yeah. Right. Cause people were like, we can't close for a week. I mean, no one knew it was going to be, a, you know, months and months and months, Right. but people were like, we pay, we earn, we're like, you know, the, whatever hand, the hand to mouth equivalent is of paying your people, mouth to hand, I guess, for restaurateurs, sure. right? Yeah. You know, they're like, we don't have two weeks operating costs in the bank, you mm -hmm. know, like that was, people were shocked to learn that. Yeah. I mean, it's other industries who've 
you know, operate very differently. And I think we ask a little more from our guests by waiting in line, by not having a reservation. But ultimately, I'm so glad we do it. And I, I don't, I can't imagine birdies being any other way. Yeah. I, I mean, I personally love it. I, I say it all the time, you Thank know, you. Um, especially not to be ageist, um, not that I'm that young, but um, I, especially to older friends of mine who, you know, take umbrage at like certain like there was a there's a restaurateur in new york everybody who knows them will know who i'm talking about <laughs> when Mo, momofuku sambar got three stars in the new york Times, oh, i remember went ballistic yep you know like you can't give three stars mm -hmm. uh, you know it's uh, frank bernie yeah uh there's uh you know the the waiters are in t-shirts and there's no backs on the chairs yep. and like and i went to momofuku sambar for the first i remember who i was with mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember the whole thing extremely vividly yeah and i was like this is amazing yeah you know you just felt like you were i was like this is exactly how different things should be right now like this is moving the ball forward but it's still recognizable but it's you know mm -hmm. and actually as i'm saying this they used to at lunch you would go up to the window there in order. Mm -hmm. I totally forgot that until we were just talking. But they were doing kind of, you know, part-time version of this. I mean, total, yeah, total trailblazing and that Bosom, it's incredible. So, uh, all right, let's talk about you. You are you are from the state originally. Yes, Houston. Uh, if you would, uh, just tell us uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, how and where you grew up in the Houston area. Mm -hmm. uh, what the family dynamic was like. I know you were lucky enough to have um, grandparents in your life mm -hmm. growing up. Yeah. Um, and and how, however you would describe it, food, restaurants, dining, cooking, uh, figured into your young life. My parents divorced when I was two, and I grew up in the Houston suburbs. And my dad and family are all in Bryan, which is like an hour and a half outside of town. My mom was probably the one that first instilled the love of food for me. Um, food was just our lives. It was you eat lunch, what's for dinner? What, what are we doing tomorrow? What's for, what, what are we cooking? What are we eating? And my mom was the cook on Sundays, but she worked a lot. She It's probably where I got my um, addiction for work from. Um, her, her dad was an Italian immigrant who came over, um, from came from nothing, self-made man. And that's, that hard work uh, mentality was just really passed down to us. Also, I just, I, I just love to eat, you know? And I was fascinated with restaurants and the way they worked. And I loved going to independent restaurants. And I talked about food in an abnormal way compared to my friends. And my friend's parents would always tease me for being the food dork. What do you mean um, you talked about food in an abnormal I, it, it way? Was, it just wasn't like, oh, I want, I can eat whatever. It was, it was like, no, but what are we eating? But, and I wanted to talk about it. And they were like, other kids just have other interests. And for me, food was, and dining in particularly, like, and it wasn't fancy. It was just like, what are we eating? Why is this good? How do we make this better? Or how can this be better? And I actually didn't cook at all growing up. I just had that love for food um, from a eating perspective. I was an I was an eater and I was an athlete. And I it's funny, I burnt myself one time when I was eight making eggs and my mom kicked me out of the kitchen and she said, all right, you're, you're good for now. And then I, I didn't go back in the kitchen other than making like something basic for myself, you know, in high school, junior high um, for a long time. And then I went to college for a hotel restaurant management and the very last week of college, um, thinking I'm going to be a, you know, strive to be a general manager of 
a restaurant or something, I helped a friend with a tasting menu. She was a sous chef at a local restaurant and it was for like 300 people. And I just got that, that like bolt of energy, that adrenaline rush. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to, I want to try to be a chef. And she was like, no, 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 no. You don't want to be a chef. This is terrible. This is so hard. You're going to work yourself to the ground. I was like, no, no, no. I think this is it. I have to ask. What do you mean you helped a friend with a tasting menu? That's not something most people just casually do. How did how did that it was, come about? Well, when I say tasting menu, it wasn't a tasting menu like you would think New York Fine Dining. It was for our college um, at the University of Houston. There's a the Hilton College of Hotel Restaurant Management's there, and it was like a, a seven course you know banquet style dinner. Oh, I so okay. I was like putting on probably a plush of parsley, you know, down the row. But Got I just, it. that excitement, that moment of service, that hands kind of moment was just so electrifying. I was instantly hooked. And uh, it's funny, I was really into music at that time. A lot of independent rock and punk rock bands in high school and college. And my love for um, sports kind of transitioned to my obsession with music, you know, shows four nights a week five nights a week and i just love the energy you got from a small rock show you know 50 people that energy that moment that high you would walk out of a, an amazing show with just glowing and i was like man i wish i could play a you know wish i could play an instrument and um i i just never had that talent and i never really tried even from a young age so i think somehow my obsession with energy live moment adrenaline doing something different not being able to focus too long, that all kind of like somehow worked out to be like, well, why don't I try cooking? And it wasn't until I was 22 that I picked up a knife professionally. You mentioned sports a second ago. Yeah. I'm always interested to know with chefs, team or individual? Team. What'd you play? Soccer. Soccer was my main sport. I played competitive in high school and I was pretty serious about it um, until the very end and I realized you kind of have to make that decision around 11th grade, am I going for college soccer or not? And I realized, you know, I think that chapter's winding down and I was really into music at that time and I was just, I was just kind of looking for the next chapter. Mm -hmm. I mean, the music thing, I, I, it's interesting because um, you're, you're, you're saying it's slightly different than I've ever heard it because I've, I've heard uh, there's so many chefs who did play an instrument, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of guitarists. Mm -hmm. But also, I, I've known a, a couple of chefs who like DJed in their lives, right? Oh. And I always thought that made that was there was a correlation. You know, you're kind of in the booth, and people were kind of vibing on like what you're putting out there, right? You used the word energy. Uh, I don't know if this is how you meant it, but it makes sense to me that you would compare that to what goes on in like a live show because that is what the energy I, I think of a of a restaurant is like you know between the dining room and the kitchen especially you have this restaurant now uh you know the kitchen's right there it's mm -hmm. very open yep um, kind of like it's funny kind of like sambar a couple people have said that when you walk in you see right because it's 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 parallel to the seating Right. Yeah, the seating. The, it runs the length of the dining room. Right. But yeah. then the kitchen's more actually laid out like noodle bar where the cooks are right there. What, what, what's going on? You, you just went somewhere? Uh, <laughs> no, I was, just, I was just thinking about that. And I was just thinking about how, how music inspires and still inspires me with birdies. And I actually I make the play most of the playlists we have. And a lot of it's just chapters of my life. You know, like sometimes it'll be we have a playlist that's like me from junior high listening to R&B, getting ready for school in the seventh grade. There's a chapter that's 
um, mid-90s. I think we played it last night. Mid-90s alternative. It's like pavement and bands like that. And it, it, it just it feels like it's so personal, our restaurant. And I'm always trying to match, taking it full circle, I'm always trying to match the energy of a live show, trying to make that like amazing performance every time. Because whenever you're cooking seasonally, kind of spontaneously, some things aren't going to be perfect sometimes. And you just have to like roll with that. You know, our recipes aren't tested. We just cook, we just go. And, you know, a lot of the dishes you had last night, those have been on the menu for one to seven days. And sometimes a dish goes on and then it only has that one night, you know? And so trying to create a moment where it's alive in that moment is what I'm always trying to do. Kind of like you're trying to find that great rock show performance. And at the end of the day, I feel like I try not to beat myself up if like at the end of the night, I'm like, oh, that dish sucked, you know, I don't like that. Because it is alive in that moment. And whether it's live theater, music, food, whatever it is, you have to show up and perform every single day. And that's kind of what pushes us to like keep getting better and never just sitting back and being like, I'm good, I'm rolling. You know, you're never, you're never, you're never completely good. You just have to keep pushing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, it's funny, Amanda Schulman from uh, her place, I interviewed during this trip. Oh, yay. You know, we were talking and, you know, she started off doing like this supper club thing in college, right? Mm -hmm. And this old Julia Child line came up, um, you know, like, because when you said if a dish, you know, didn't work or whatever, and Julia Child had this line, like, never tell people about your mistakes because they don't know what you had in your head, right? I love that. It's probably much more of a failure to you than it is to your guests. Mm -hmm. But that aside, something about the music list, um, at least once, I think maybe twice, you there you, there were you did um, kind of double down on the same band, right? Which yeah, which when I used to sometimes you know do the mixes for parties, I would I would do that. Like mm-hmm. I know there were a couple of Rolling Stone songs back to back. Yep. And then I don't know if this was intentional or not. I asked Arjav about it. Arjav is here by the way, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I was like. Have we gone into the Clueless soundtrack? Yep. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there I'm were two aware. songs back to back that are on the Clueless soundtrack. Very aware. You um, were, that, that was intentional. intentional. That was one of my favorite movies uh, when I was 16. So, yes. See? Born I, in 82. I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not crazy. Yeah, that's, okay. that's my favorite playlist. I feel very seen. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, because I, I, I used I, there was a period where, you know, when you listen to an album a lot. Yep. It. It's there forever. The sequence, right? Yeah. So you decide you want you you go to what what did they call it exactly? Hospitality and culinary. Um, it was it's the Conrad and Hilton College of Hotel Restaurant and Management. So essentially, you're learning how to to go be a general manager of a Four Seasons or something like that. Because I knew after high school something with food, but I just wasn't sure what. So it wasn't necessarily restaurant chef. It was not chef. It was 100% something around food. But I, I think just from a young age, I just never considered myself as a chef, just someone who wanted to be around food and mm-hmm. wanted to do something with food or travel or something like that. What else were you doing at that time to kind of you know activate ideas in your head? Like were you you know, were you looking at job listings, for, you know, in the food realm? Were you reading books about the food, about the, you know, various asp- corners of the industry? Like, sure. what were you doing to kind of set your compass or think about it? Sure. So this was uh, around 2002. My, I started hosting at a restaurant called Houston's. And, you know, it's just this like classic restaurant group from around the country. Um, 
think it's the Hillstone Group. And I love those restaurants, by the I way. I mean, they're solid. They are very consistent and really tasty. They and have a surprising amount of respect from very accomplished you know, what people think of as like, yeah. you know, New York City, yeah. uh, you know, big city American chefs yep. who you would think would look down on a place like that. Mm-hmm. They don't look down on that chain. They no. absolutely respect it. No, I mean, I was, I learned a lot. It was like, there were a lot of rules to, to being a host at Houston. So, you know, you couldn't have cotton black socks, that your suit had to be approved. It had to hit at the certain length. Everything was very structured. And I was honestly... I was a late bloomer in life and I was still really into music. And, you know, when I showed up, I would be on, but I wasn't, I hadn't, I hadn't like flipped a switch yet. You know, I hadn't gotten the obsession yet. And I was still kind of looking for the exact thing to like really reel me in. I feel like some people who are 21 are just totally focused and know what to do. And I was just, I was just going a little bit slower paced than, than others. Was that um, a comfortable place for you to be? Um, Did you feel it wasn't until it wasn't. It wasn't until it wasn't. I, I was coasting, having fun, you know, working my host job, going to college, and then graduated. And I actually went to to Barcelona for six months mm-hmm. to study Spanish, and kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And that's where I was really inspired by the Las Ramblas and all the farmers markets. Growing up in suburbia Houston, we had Kroger's, and you know the apples with the stickers, the Red Delicious that are howled and are gross you know that's what I had and going to Barcelona and seeing the abundance of like langoustine and all these incredible ingredients was like whoa there's a different life out there you know in a way that Houston at the time was a lot of steakhouses and Tex-Mex some really great spots but that for me was was not my calling were you not aware of exactly what you were going to see when you got there like was it was it I had no idea I'd never been it it hit you like a bucket of cold water it was just like picked it on a map just was like Spain I mean realistically now no understanding that now they speak a lot of Catalan in that region um, rather than Spanish I probably would have been better off learning Spanish in the south or in Madrid it's a whole but, different ballgame for people who don't know Catalan it's it's oh yeah but like if you go over speaking Spanish to a Catalan city or t- a town like yeah they respond to you in know, Catalan and they're probably know just <laughs> enough to be confused yeah totally but I was I didn't know what I was doing I was 22 and just rolling by the seat of my pants you know um, I actually had a professor in college at University of Houston. And I was like, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do next. I can't figure it out. I know there's something out there for me. And he goes, this is what you do. Get a bottle of cava, lock yourself in a room over there, drink it all, and then have a piece of paper out and say, what makes me happy? And I wrote down, okay, food, duh. That's what I'm, I'm, something with food. And then I wrote down writing. And I wasn't a great writer. I was mediocre. But I wrote writing because I enjoyed it. And then I put cooking question mark because there was something about cooking from helping my friend plate that dinner, that seven course or whatever dinner that had inspired me. And then, you know, you have the internal dialogue while you're drunk alone and you're like, should I should I try cooking? Am I too old to start cooking? Because everything I'd read about fancy chefs as they start in Europe when they're 15 and, you know, they're just trained and groomed and running their own restaurants by the time they're 24. And I was clearly late to the party. And in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm either going to write and discuss other things, or I'm going to try to try to make my, try to make it for myself. And I knew that I might epically fail and I might be terrible at it, but I was going to give it my shot. 
and I was going to go for it. So I came back home after uh, my time in Barcelona after five or six months, and then I moved to Chicago because in Chicago I knew they were cooking seasonally. I had an ex-boyfriend who I was still um, friends with, who was a really good guy, and he was like a connection I had to that town. And there was a restaurant there that I loved, Lula Cafe. And I was like, man, if I could only work at Lula. They've got really cool ingredients. They go to the farmer's market. You know, we didn't have a lot of those at that time in Houston. And that could really take me to the next step. Let's just set up Lula Cafe for people. I just ate there for the first time last year. Uh, it's an institution in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Not as well known nationally. I don't know why. Same. Um, because in Chicago, Jason is like one of the... I mean, he's such a youthful looking guy, but he's like mm -hmm. one of the elder statesmen of the chef community. Yeah. You know, although he looks like he's a graduate student. Um, uh, they they have these intense relationship with the farms, but um, not only do they go to the farmer's market, they do these they do farm dinners every Monday night. Yep. Uh, no dishes ever repeated. It's a unique menu every Monday night. Mm -hmm. the, the menu in the restaurant itself changes daily. Yep. And, um, you know, it's it's they have a brunch that's very... To this day, people queue up for it. Oh, it's epic. The yeah. best. Yeah. And this is 24 years in, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're still they're still doing great, right? At a time when the average lifespan of a restaurant is, you know, I don't know what it is. It's probably average two years, three years, if they're maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they do it right and they take care of their team. And I think it just become it comes from the fact that Jason and Leah are the best people. And you can just feel that in everything they do through that restaurant. So you, how did you, how'd you get the job? Funny story. So I moved to Chicago. I showed up, you know, had my shiny resume with my hosting at Houston's experience. And I was also a server at like a little Italian restaurant in Houston. Um, and my shiny, yeah, my, my shiny resume. And I'm like, here, here I am. I went to college. I'm ready to be a cook, whatever you need. And initially I, um, I walked in and I, accidentally insulted Jason. So I thought coming from culinary school, the chefs were tokes. And he was, there he was in an apron without, without a hat or anything. And I, I walked in and he was up behind the bar. And I was like, hi, can I see the chef? And he goes, you're looking at him. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then I was like, well, here, here's my resume, um, chef. Um, and he was just kind of like, okay, uh, we'll let you know if we need anybody. And I just like epically felt my heart drop. And I was like, that did not go well. That was not good. So I kind of like waited around for a little bit. I needed to pay my bills. So I then went to Hot Dogs. Um, Hot Dogs was an epic um, hot dog place. Um, Doug, I don't know his last name. He made these the best hot dogs I've ever had in my life. Um, the sausages were all made in house. Um, amazing duck fat fries. There was always a line outside. It was just the place to be. Um, and I showed up there, same resume, ready to go. I'm like, okay, I think it would be you know really great to to work here. And I, you know, for some reason, I thought maybe I'll learn about making hot dogs and how to do that the right way. And he looked at me and turned around and there were like two burly dudes behind him. And he's like, I mean, I guess you can be a server here right now. And you know, the kitchen's full. And I just kind of got the feeling like, okay, maybe this isn't the right thing. So I was uh, ended up being a kitchen manager, air quotes, um, at this brunch restaurant. And I was like, look, I'm going to be honest. I'm here. I need to learn. I don't know how to cook. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. You went to college. You'll be great here. And it was 
it was an epic disaster. I remember one day, I think my third day, I was working with one person in the kitchen, still didn't know how to cook, and the local news came. So there's like a camera in my face, I'm burning pancakes on the flat top, and I was like, this really couldn't get any worse right now. And so after that, I, I kept going to Lula. I kept popping in every few months, and I was like, hey, still here in case you need a prep person. And finally, I, I wore Jason down, and he gave me a shot. I have to just ask, uh, first of all, you come to Chicago. You hadn't eaten there yet, I'm assuming. Eaten at, at Lula? Lula? Oh, yeah, I, I eaten at Lula probably three or four times. Oh, before you came in with the resume? Right, so okay. I, I, I found out about Lula because in visiting my uh, former boyfriend. Oh, I see, I, okay. That was our favorite place to go have oh, brunch. Okay. okay, So I knew Lula was on my radar, and that's that's really so why that's I wanted why. to, to move was, to Chicago. I was gonna say, there's so many restaurants in Chicago, like. I wanted that one, you, I just you, had my eyes on. out. Yeah. yeah, it just, it felt right. It was neighborhood, it was approachable, it wasn't too intimidating, because I knew I needed to learn how to cook. I thought I even knew more than I did, which was nothing. Jason taught me how to hold a knife, and how to, or Leah taught me how to organize myself in the kitchen. And so I was on prep for six months, and you know, made all the basics of the, the restaurant. The pancake batter, um, there were maki rolls at the time, I made the maki rolls, and then I worked my way garmage down to saute. And then after down to saute, I, I was there for I think a year and a half. I talked to them, I, was, I said, hey y'all, I'm, I'm thinking about going to culinary school. I, I'm really you know serious about this now, and, and they fully supported it, and so I ended up going to CIA in Hyde Park. First of all, I don't know, you may find this interesting. So the reason I interviewed Jason is he has a book coming out this fall. Yes, so, so exciting. The Lula Cafe Cookbook. Yeah. Um, so I'm sitting on the interview until then. Uh -huh. But I did say to, I did ask him at one point how he kept it for himself, mm -hmm. fresh, you know? And he gave me the best answer. He said, it's not the food. And, and it, was, it was the teaching. Mm -hmm. It was like the sharing of information and the nurturing of new talent. That was the thing he said kept it engaging for him. Um, so it was interesting for me to hear you talk about, like he told you how to hold the knife, you know, really, I mean, that's the most basic thing, right? That's like one of the first, maybe the first thing when you get into cooking school? I, I would say it's, it's one of the first things. And maybe they taught us like in college, there was like a class on cooking, but it was very basic. And you don't really learn how to properly hold a knife until you're cutting onions for 10 hours a day, you yeah. know? And to give them credit, I was not a natural in the kitchen. It, I really struggled in the beginning. I mean, I had a great attitude, but I have trouble focusing, so I get distracted. I can get lost in a task, and I have to kind of pull myself out of it. And so I think them being patient with me and teaching me just the basics of how to, to work in a kitchen um, are really admirable because I wasn't one of those natural cooks who just came in and started kicking butt right away. Well, I was just going to ask because you talked about the pancake thing, you know, like oh the burning God. the pancakes and then you're oh talking about God. this. But um, <laughs> I mean, did you have uh, was there self-doubt in these early gigs? I mean, were you did you did you wonder sure. what, if you should just like kind of ring the bell and go do something else? No, I was so committed. I was I was so our my first day at Lula was Jason Vincent's first day at Lula. So Jason Vincent was a sous chef. I was a prep cook. Um, so we started together and he was roommates with this guy, John, who was like the opening, I think, sous chef for CDC of Alenia. It was when Alenia was opening. So it was kind of I was in the right place at the right time and I got to meet the right people who talked about the right things and put my head in the right place. So 
I had a re- the right attitude, and that's what I always look for in cooks is the right attitude because with repetition and a positive, smart attitude, you're going to figure it out eventually, some faster than others. But I was, I was, you know, in it to win it. I realized this is what I want to do, and I want to be the best I can be. Yeah, and it's a great thing for people to hear. You know, I remember Alfred Portelli once said to me, um, there are two ways you can be great. You can be born with talent, you know, just born to it, you know, mm-hmm. and or you can just work hard, mm-hmm. you know, you can just work harder than other people and, yep. and you can get, you can still get, there's the, it's, you can get to the same place. Yep. Um, I, I think especially today, I mean, this is the eight, right? What is, what is every young chef? I don't know how we, the 30 became the number, I guess, for every, mm-hmm. you know, I want to have sure. a restaurant by the time I'm 30. Sure. You hear that from like everybody. Oh, I said that thinking I, I wanted to be like, a little Houston Danny Meyer or something, I mean, but that wasn't my say path. That, right? Yeah. And yeah. and uh, and you know, you yourself, when you s- described your own early days, you said, you know, I wasn't born doing, you know, I wasn't doing this as a kid, and I didn't, Mm-mm. you know, like, but you, you know, that's that. In the implied thing about that is that's in contrast to what people maybe would expect, right? Because we yeah. we hear those stories so often. At this point. What are you what are you thinking? Like do you have a sense of what kind of thing you wanted to do eventually, what kind of food you wanted to make, uh, what kind of restaurant maybe you wanted to be the chef of, or were you just really kind of you know, I mean you go to school, right? Mm-hmm. But were you just really still just in a pure learning phase? I was in a learning phase. I didn't know I knew I wanted to try to be great. I knew I didn't want to just have, you know, two more years of experience and then open up a place. I knew for me I needed longer to train and I wanted to learn at the best place. I wanted to work with the best people. I was just, you know, ready to do the grind, ready to work seven hours or seven days a week. I I was just committed and hungry. Um, There was no, here's my restaurant yet. I I had no idea. None? No. I mean, I, I knew that what Jason and Leah had was magic, maybe a place like that. But beyond that, not really. But that really. was just like a vibe, right? Right, like, yeah, right. I mean, it felt like that. Yeah, I knew that like having things like cartoons and having relationships with farmers was the way I wanted to do it. But other than that, I really didn't know. Um, can I, if it's not, tell me if it's too personal because sure. we don't have to talk about it. Okay. But, you know, I, I, I deal with it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you've mentioned this attention deficit thing a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I so don't see, I, I so don't um, perceive you that way. You, you seem very, I mean, why are you looking over there? Look, just looking now, at our job. <laughs> Look, looking at our job because- You're looking because... away from me as I asked the question about attention deficit. No, go ahead and tell me why you looked and then I'll tell you the rest of it. Um, our job is just always like, wow, Trace, you gotta come back, you gotta come back. Um, it's just hard for me to focus. I don't I don't know what else to say about it. I, I think that I, I could not have worked a nine to five sit behind the desk job. Just would have been miserable in life, you yeah. know? There was no passion in that for me. And for me working with my hands, making something with my hands, doing something on my feet, you know, literally running around, being challenged every day in a different way. I think that would that's what I was meant to do. I think my cooks want to, maybe kill me sometimes because it's hard for me to stay f- super focused and but uh, rather than looking at it now as a, a problem I, I i look at it as a strength in some ways i mean there's pros and cons sure but i i just try to embrace it yeah you I know get that. like i said i deal with the same thing you know i've stopped trying to work on one project 
all day long. You know, mm -hmm. I've just uh, gotten used to the idea. I'm going to touch everything a little bit. And hopefully by the end of the week, I'll have gotten what I wanted to get done. Yeah. Done on everything, you know. Yeah. But anyway, for what it's worth, I won't belabor it. But I mean, even in the restaurant last night, you know, it was busy. Um, you know, uh, you came over and talked to us for a little bit. But like, you, I don't know, you seem calm and um, I didn't mm -hmm. I didn't perceive it at all. But obviously you're describing Thanks. something that's extremely common uh, yeah. to, to people who do what you do. I mean, extremely, yeah. and they all and a lot of people describe the sort of. Uh, I remember years ago, the chef from he's in Long Island now, Jesse Schenker, uh, who had Reset in New York City. Mm -hmm. But you know, he did this thing once. He talked about you know all the stuff going on in his head. He said, and then I got into a kitchen. I can still hear him doing it, and he goes, it was like, mm -hmm. right, yeah, and it, it that was the effect the kitchen had on his mind. Yeah, 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 and it's it's the way I look at it as a strength in a way is that some of my cooks who I can identify with or certain other things around that, you know, the, a lot of cooks, we have a tendency to get in our heads sometimes and make a mistake, dwell on it. I, I still do it every day, but learning to recognize it and control it and just process, Hey, that's happening. It's okay. I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. Let's just move on. I wish I would have learned that earlier in my career because so many mis I can remember rem remember so many mistakes from cooking in New York to this day and Chicago. Just I still remember the exact mistake. I remember the conversation about it, and it it haunts me, you know. And so trying to control that haunt, I was always envious of the people who could make a mistake. The chef told them they'd go okay, and that was it. That was it. You could tell it just like went right through them, and I was like wow. They're not going to lose sleep tonight over that. And I thought that was just like a superpower. I totally get this. I'll make a little faux pas, you know, like at a party talking to someone. And they'll like <laughs> laugh it off. And my wife will say, you don't understand. Andrew's going to be asking me about this like when we go to bed tonight. Like he's going to be like, you know, and then he's going to ask yeah. me in the morning. Like you just don't understand. That's our job know? and I too. Yep. Yep. Totally. Yeah, totally. Okay. Cooking school? What was the experience like for you? I loved it. I... I was a little bit older at that point. I was 25, 26, and uh, became my group leader. You know, you had these like classes of, I think, 15 or 20 people. Um, and I was just so serious at that point. I'd gotten the, you know, I wanna party, I wanna do this, I wanna do that, out of my system mm -hmm. when I was younger. And I was just game face, intense, like, ready to go and I think I was kind of the dork in the class that some of the kids would like roll their eyes at you know but I was always prepared it was the first time I'd ever done really well in school it was easy for me to focus on on cooking terminology and everything around cooking and food and restaurants uh, I was terrible at taking like SAT ACT things just couldn't get through the test and for the first time because I could apply every question to a real life experience that I was passionate about, I could really thrive. So I graduated um, like top of my class, just so excited to return to New York and keep cooking. And did you do an externship in New York? Um, I did do an externship um, at Crew. Uh, oh, that was your CRU. Okay. Yeah, I was Shea yeah. Galante. In Got it. West yeah, Village. that was in the West Village on mm -hmm. Fifth, Lower Fifth Avenue, just yep. above Washington Square Park. Sure yeah. was. Yep. A lot of wine focus there. Uh, yeah, it was a massive <laughs> Burgundy list. Yeah. Um, a lot of high rollers coming through there. Um, Grant Ackett's actually wrote in his book. He thought the last great meal he was ever going to have was at Crew, and I was on the Asagi station that night, and I made his arancini. So. Um, oh, you kind of smiled big when you just. It said was. That. 
I mean, yeah, he's, you know, to be able to make like even a small bite for a legend who thought that might be their last great meal is pretty magical. That was meaningful to you. Yeah. Great. So, t- so from there to where? Tell us about your so, New York, your New York years. So I was ready to get back to New York after culinary school, and it, for those people who go to CIA or any any school, um, there's like a couple weeks you have in the fish kitchen and the meat kitchen, and I wanted to learn about breaking down fish, and because we had such a big class, I didn't get to break down and cut as many fish as I'd wanted to, so I would come in on my spare time and say, hey, is there any fish I can just practice, and I would I was just trying to learn there. And Corky Clark is one of, he's like a legendary CIA fish chef. Uh, everybody knows him. He's like a ex-Navy guy. And he walked out one day and he goes, you're going to be my TA. That was teaching assistant, what they mm-hmm. call it back then. And I was like, um, thank you, chef, but no thank you. I'm, I'm going to go back to New York. I'm ready to cook. And he goes, oh, no, you're going you're gonna to be my TA. So when Corky Clark said you're going to be my TA, it's hard, you can't really say no just because he's such a legend. And so I ended up kind of negotiating this deal. I did um, three months as a teaching assistant in the fish room and three months in the meat room working with Chef Schneller and Chef Siebold, who are other two legendary chefs at the CIA. So on my weekends off, um, that six-month post-graduation, I was going to, um, you know, we were going to butcher chickens and pigs and things like that because my mentality was, even though this isn't like an enjoyable thing per se, if I'm going to be cooking it, I should have at least killed it. And you just really get, you know, a special respect after that. How'd you come to that way of thinking? Do you know? I, I just think I was, you know, reading a ton of books then. Um, Michael Roman, Soul of a Chef, was really big at the time and really drew me in. Um, just hearing the teachings of like, you know, the Thomas Kellers, um, you know, he was the big one. But everyone I was around, I was fortunate enough to be around really smart, talented, hard workers. And, you know, I just picked up that energy. Um, I was trailing on my weekends at culinary school. I'd just go down the city, take the Metro uh, Rail North. Is that right? Metro Met- North. Metro North. Um, it's been a minute. And would just go trail Danielle or, you know, wherever, um, just to see what was going on. Um, I have to ask, um, and I have to, I now, it's so weird, I have to do this, this disclaimer now, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm now an adjunct ins- professor cool. <laughs> at the CIA, so oh, cool. I have a professional affiliation with the CIA. I guess I need to say, start saying that. It oh, feels, I didn't know that. feels very weird. Um, well, it's, it starts this fall, but it's been, I'm on the website. Congrats. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so that aside, um, when, when, you know, it sounds so old school to me that a chef instructor would say, you know, no, you're going to stay here. You know, like. Yeah, if you, you knew know, Corky like, Clark, that's just how he was. No, I get that. <laughs> but it's direct. like, and, you know, and, and there's a whole thing in certainly in New York City kitchens. You know, there are these great stories. Harold Moore told an amazing one on this show. Um, uh, you know, if chef's saying, no, 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 not yet. I still need you for another X period of time, mm-hmm. you know, and the cook's just, you know, obliging, you yeah. know, when you look back on that, does that, I mean, you know, there's all this, um, there's all this examination now of, you know, the, the, the traditions, rituals, mm-hmm. um, power structures, like in yeah. the, in the culinary world, does it seem strange to you that you were like, 
told, you know, as they say in a Bronx town, now you can't leave. Like, like, uh, did that seem odd? Does it seem odd looking back that you were actually no, it, com- it, like basically like commanded to stick around? I, I mean, I see where you're coming from. Um, and by the but, way, I don't have I personally all the a lot of the old stuff to me is still kind of I, I still romanticize. I understand yeah. why people want a lot of it to change. Right. But I've also seen the product of it. And a lot of the product is pretty great. You know, I mean, I think there's like just an element of respect there. Um, and sure of that, the old times or whatever. And by no means was I that was the air quotes old times. It was kind of a transitional moment of going from old times to new. But I, for me, it was a matter of respect. And if he felt like I needed to and I wanted to get better at cutting fish, then. But I, however, I was still excited to go to New York. I was like, all right, let's just negotiate this and make this a win win. How do you find yourself in the in the world of the Union Square hospitality group? Um, well, I had a couple stops right before that. So I I graduated in 2008, and um, I talked to Shay at Crew, and he was like, look, the recession's hitting all of us. I suggest if you want to stay in fine dining, going to a bigger restaurant that's going to be safe and solid through this. And I wound up at Del Posto working with Mark Ladner. Um, when I was there, we got four stars in the New York Times, which was pretty incredible. And then after that, wanted to cook seasonal food. Um, that changed a little bit more, kind of back to my my roots at Lula and went to Blue Hill. I was at the New York Kitchen um, before it got remodeled. Um, and I learned a lot there, worked with some awesome people. And it was, it was a real grind and a real push every day. But the food we were putting out, you know, tasting every single dish multiple times, trying to make it the best you could every time you know, that just really stays with you. And after my time at Blue Hill, I went to Gramercy Tavern with Mike Anthony. And had you known, did you overlap with his time at Blue Hill or was that no. just, that's just a coincidence? My, yeah, that's just a coincidence. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He was there much before. He, Got it. Yeah. Okay. What made you want to go there? Um, so I had a friend who had worked at Gramercy and he was like, Trace, you're going to love it. I went to CIA with him. Now he's working in wine, but he was like, "You got, you got to go work at Gramercy. I'm telling you, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love Mike. It's he's uh, professional, he's kind, he's thoughtful, but they're still really pushing for excellence. You know, I, I just think you're gonna fit in in that kitchen." And so I trailed there, and the timing was right. And I had, at that point, almost four years of I had four years of fine dining New York City experience. Um, was at Del Posto. I'd cooked all the stations, um, had left as Meat Rose Saucier, and I started at the bottom at Gramercy. I started at Garmerger, and I, you know, that kitchen was so stacked with talent. You know, our sous chefs, our chef de cuisine, they'd all been there five to nine years, you know? And so whenever a place is great, which GT is great, a great restaurant, um, people don't want to leave, you know? And so I started at the bottom, slowly worked my way up. And then after a couple years became Turnot. Um, Got, um, once I was Turnot, I was, they were like, sorry, we can't really promote you right now. We're just full. And- um, Actually, for one second, for people who don't know, Turnot, it's basically a floater, right? It's someone who's able to work every station. Yes. So you can kind of pitch in, you 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 can fill in when someone's off. Yes. Just for people who don't know the term, that's all. Yeah. yeah. So I was Turnot, which I I love the challenge of every day. Someday you were just like kind of an extra support, helping out the stations in the weeds and behind. And other days you were thrown on a station because someone called out sick. And 
it's funny because I remember being on Entremet some days, the like the vegetable station, and I'd have to make I don't know four puree sauces and you know here'd be a page recipe and i have a hard time i've never been diagnosed i've never gotten tested but it's hard for me to process that much information that quickly and like it's set in and so i would just tell like a sous chef uh i was working a lot with suzanne cups there at the time who was um we were cooks together and then she got promoted to sous chef and so i'd be like Suze, can you just tell me how to make this and it's going to be great. And then she would just like tell me how to make it. I'd make it, and we'd be like, "Sweet, that that worked great." Um, and I knew I worked a little differently at that time than other cooks. But that's a great thing to know about yourself. Y- yeah, to know how you best receive information is great. It, it it took me a while to figure it out, and I'm still not a recipe kind of person, as my team will tell you. But I loved being a tornot because it was a great challenge. It allowed me to relax a little bit you just kind of had to be loose you had to go with the flow at any moment hey trace you need to work meat roast right now or you need to be on the station right now okay let's do it and you would just put your head down and push and smile and taste and go and i think that position um was really important in me knowing how to cook learning how to cook because you got to hone like everything everything every day the menu changed a good amount so things were different yeah um Mike had a certain way of doing things um, that was like always rooted in French technique, which I really started learning at crew and, you know, the way to build a puree and how to sweat the, you know, your aromatics and when to add the wine and how far to reduce it if you wanted what effect and, you know, if you want to add multiple additions of liquors to kind of bring down. They're just all those little like basic French kind of like fundamentals um, that people don't always talk about were really important. Um, fully cooking the vegetables so you can puree it nice. All of those basics um, that sometimes cooks go past, I really got, I had the time to dial in. How to make a beautiful salad. I still love Garmerger. It's probably my favorite station. It's just, there's just a touch and attention to detail to make it look effortless like it fell from heaven that I love being torn not because every day I would like try to show off for myself. You know, I try to like set up my station perfectly for myself, you know, and it was just a fun challenge. Where'd you get that felt from heaven line? Do you know? Probably, I got it from Leah at Lula. She's the first. Interesting. Yeah. Jonathan Waxman used to tell people that that's how he, well, he said the sky. But yeah. when he, years ago, he would say, I want, the, I want it to look like it just fell out of the sky. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of, it's kind of a style of a lot of seasonal kind of chefs that don't want things to look too perfect. They just want it to look natural and beautiful. Yeah, which isn't easy. I mean, no. for people out there who just, you know, dine or just starting to cook, like it, it, it takes a lot to make something look like it just appeared there, you know, like it just kind of happened. Yeah. It's funny when, when I interview cooks now, I, I kind of I ask them, what do you think about our food? And I, I kind of listen to how they respond. If so, they say, oh, looks simple, looks easy. I know that's not the right fit for us. So cooks that can appreciate the simplicity and understand the detail that go into the simplicity are the ones that work out in our kitchen. Yeah. I mean, don't, I mean, a nowhere to hide. Yep. And B, uh, everything has to really, you have to kind of nail everything, right? So every, so you're getting exactly what you want out of each element of a dish. Yeah. It's, it's so easy yet. So complicated. Um, can we just talk for a second about the, the the management style of GT? I feel like it's something sure. that people, you know, I mean, Mike's Mike Mike's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
I don't know if he's ever told me this. Multiple people who have worked for him told me at some point he stopped having people call him chef. Yep. Um, just He's Mike, yep. you know? Um, uh, did, 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 it, did it, and I'm not asking you at all, or even I'm not implying any kind of disparagement of the other places you worked, right? Sure. But, you know, from, from the Culinary Institute, where I think you said when you were asked to do, you know, you, you alluded to people as chef, mm-hmm. um, you know, to some of these other kitchens you worked in. Um, did it seem like different from the norm there? Did it seem like a, a, yeah. a little bit of an evolved kind of style of doing things? I don't mean culinarily. I just mean like in terms of the vibe, you know, the man, the style. Yeah. I think my first week I was like, why is everyone being so nice? Is this real? <laughs> is this like a cult? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but everyone was supportive and friendly. The dining room team to the kitchen and th- there were less barriers between, you know, the kitchen and the the front it was more like oh you seem like you're having a bad day can i get you a tea just i got i got you you know that that look you had with your colleagues of what can i do for you you know can i take something off your list i i i know i can tell you're not well today just the fact that people had were able to like lift their head up sometimes and go beyond the world they were in i think was really important and i think that stemmed from mike and the way he ran his kitchen you know it was it wasn't an easy kitchen by any means we we pushed and we worked hard but we had a lot of fun doing it and we were respectful and thoughtful and i needed to rethink the way i was communicating and i figured out a lot of my shortcomings there and and some even after i left you know and lessons that i was being taught that i didn't fully absorb until i'm still absorbing you know i think sometimes learning takes longer than just that moment great thank you for that so then from the, from there it was did you go follow Suzanne to untitled was yeah that your next stop yeah so um, Mike and Suzanne and Jenny Jones our purchasing manager who was another part of our our group um, we we left to open un- well left Mike Mike was still a chef at Gramercy um, we branched off to open Untitled in the studio cafe at the Whitney and Suzanne became chef de cuisine and she's a very calm and collected leader which I'm a little more passionate more vocal not that not, she's not passionate I'm just we just have a very different style she's very articulate she's v- very smart she's very mature. She's a great communicator. And I learned, I think, a lot of those things from Suze. Um, Being intentional with words, you know? I don't know her that well. I mean, she's been on the show, actually, thanks to Mike. Um, Yeah. uh, um, I asked him when I said, who should I, who haven't I had that I should interview? And he put, he introduced me to Suzanne. Um, I ate at that restaurant several times right when it opened. And we should say, when you say the Whitney, for people who aren't in New York, this was the Whitney downtown. Yes. uh, The one right near where the Standard Hotel is on the west side. Yeah. And, um, you know, even as much as Gramercy had it, I feel like the kind of emphasis, at least in in terms of the way the, the restaurant was talked about itself, was very much on product, you know, farm product from you know the farmers and the and the it was very um uh ingredient forward mm-hmm. i mean that sounds like a weird thing to say but it was that was really i mean that's how i perceived it it seemed like yep. that was really emphasized there yep um uh i ate there i think it opened in 17 if i'm not mistaken uh 16 i think 
15? Wow. Okay. 15. Wow, time right. flies. My mind's... Oh, yeah, May of 15. Okay. Our, our job's coaching us in the back. <laughs> so I... Uh, uh, I um, yeah, well, anyway, I, I, I ate there a bunch. I really, really, really liked it. Um, uh, at what point in here do you start having a sense of what you would do, you know, when you put hang, hung out your own shingle? Like, are you keeping notebooks of, of ideas? Are you thinking of things? Mm-hmm. Um, are you getting an opportunity at all to put your own, spe- you know, specials up or to yeah. contribute, you know, to dish ideation? Like, yeah. like how, how are you, how is your sense of your food yeah. starting th- to coalesce? Well, I think it was starting to come into form um, at Gramercy in a way. And that at that time, that chapter in Gramercy, um, you know, we had Chef de Cuisine, Howard Kalachnikov, and a team of, I think it was five or six sous chefs. And we would work on dishes together or, you know, we would independently work on a dish and it needed to, you know, be under Mike's vision and the umbrella of his style of seasonal American food. Mm-hmm. And we taste it together and talk through it and edit and dial it in. It would all happen pretty quick because we were seasonal. We weren't testing, you know, months and months in advance or anything. And that was a really awesome opportunity for me because I got to see how, you know, some of the greats were coming up with dishes. And at a certain point, you just start feeling it, you know. And so I was able to, you know, help be a part of the recipe ideation there. Um as part of that team and then going to Untitled, it was the same thing. So it would be like, okay, I want to do something with carrots, um, maybe black garlic. And then you just kind of went and then we tasted it together and, you know, is it ready or do we need to tweak it? And these were great exercises for me to becoming a chef. And, you know, it needed to be under Mike and Suzanne's, you know, umbrella, of course. But it, it was a great way for me to understand the balance of a dish, of restraint, of it's not always about adding three more things. It's just about letting the ingredients shine for themselves. So, um, I guess should we address should we address our job? Should we get you guys together in this story? Why not? <laughs> uh, when exactly? I mean, he was working for the company as well. Yes, he started uh, as a server, and then was promoted to manager. Right. And we both lived in the East Village, so we were both um, the PM closer. So we would. Oh, hey, you know, going back to this village, you want to take the L train home together? Um, and we became good friends. And one night we were at an East Village bar after work and we're like, oh, let's grab, grab a Negroni, you know? And we had a couple Negronis and I was like, you know what? One day we're going to open a restaurant together. I just felt it. I was like, you know, he was fun. He was smart. He was passionate. He was driven. He loved food in a way that you don't find in most people just love food loved wine and i was was like i think i think he's the guy you know i think this is my future is creating a restaurant and without missing a beat he said we're also going to get married and this is before he had taken me out on a date so pretty much that night after a couple negronis we set our future um and then plus plus a baby now i didn't know any of this that's great when you said the thing about the restaurant were you imagining texas or were you imagining new york i wasn't sure i for a long time i thought i would i wanted to open a restaurant in new york you know i had that new york grit that mindset of like New York or nowhere. I met him and we were at that time living in the corner of like Prospect Heights and Crown Heights, a tiny apartment, and we couldn't decide where to go. We're like, okay, 
our job grew up in Portland, Oregon. I grew up in Houston. Austin, there was something about Austin that felt right from a, like an opportunity standpoint. It was a cool, open-minded city. Um, my family was in Texas, and I was like, you know, where are we going to go? And we were fighting about where to go, as most couples do before embarking on their next chapter. And we flipped a coin, heads Austin, tails Portland. For real? And it was heads. And that's how we decided. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And you didn't try to switch it over to two out of three? I did. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would have done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, it, it, it was like we were... It, that was it. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we had it. discussed it to the 10th degree and yeah. we were going to Austin. It's an amazing story. I mean, and again, I, again, I really love the restaurant. Can we just talk about Austin for one second? Let's do it. I, I can't, I've been here for 48 hours almost. Mm -hmm. I love it. I can't figure it out. I was walking around last night and I was like, am I drunk? Like, <laughs> you know, like, am I high? Like, like I, 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 first of all, I was at an event and I saw two guys with white, cowboy hats, white shirts, blue jeans, black boots. Uh, what do you call it? String tie? I don't know. What a bolo? Bolo tie. Mm -hmm. Dancing. Nice. To the Spice Girls. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I think that that's Austin. That seems like Austin to me. Yeah. Um, uh, it's like this funky hodgepodge of a city. Like I, I it, it, may, it makes no sense to me. I feel like every 10 feet, I'm in a different world. You know, I was at a stoplight last night walking to Mohawk mm -hmm. where I ended my night seeing a, a, um, a band. It was amazing. It was amazing. Um, and I was with two of the three guys I'm with had cowboy hats. And I turned to my right. We're waiting for the light to change. And there's a drag queen. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. It is amazing. Does, does it stop seeming so unique after a while or does that, does that, does that linger? Because I find it kind of magical. Like I'm, I'm really taken with this city. Yeah, look, the city's been really great to us. It's dynamic, it's changing. It's, you know, the old Austin was very, keep Austin weird. And it was kind of funky, kind of hippie energy. And now it's has more tech influence coming in and so it is totally just a melting pot of a lot of different things happening at once and somehow it still feels like a small town to me maybe it's coming from new york that's epic you, you come to austin and you can get a lot of places in 15 minutes if it's not rush hour which is super convenient and to me this community is just the restaurant community in particular has been so welcoming of our job and I as humans, as a family, as a restaurant, so supportive. Um, all of our friends, um, our close friends own restaurants and our chefs, and we all have each other's backs. And it's just really, really inspirational. And we feel so fortunate to be in this community. And that's our show for today. My thanks again to Tracy Malachek Ezekiel for joining us. If you are in Austin or find yourself visiting, I recommend Birdie's. You will love it there. Thanks also to Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals for their support. Try out their free basic version today by visiting getmeez.com forward slash Andrew. 
Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, and or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcast. Our thanks as always to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening. And we will be back very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>